Hello again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in once again in the new year of 2021. My name is Jeff Kwame, your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to cultivate and maintain the highest standards of professional practice within the recovery field. And we feel that this podcast is certainly in furtherance of that mission. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. We'd certainly like to offer thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Recovery Network of Programs, which serves the greater Bridgeport, Connecticut community since 1972, and their mission is to restore hope, health, and well-being for individuals and families in a recovery environment that embraces compassion, dignity, and respect. And I want to thank their executive director, Jen Kolakowski, for offering to sponsor this podcast. Recovery capital is a term that was first defined in 1999 as the breadth and depth of both internal and external resources that can be drawn upon to initiate and sustain recovery from substance use disorders. More simply put, recovery capital is the entirety of resources that an individual has available to them in order to enter and sustain their individualized recovery process. No two individuals in recovery are alike, and logically, recovery capital differs from person to person. Our guests today focused their efforts on that individual financial capability as recovery capital, and given the dearth of research in this specific area, it is certainly groundbreaking. Hinkley Jones-Sampay has taught public policy at the graduate and undergraduate level for over 15 years. She holds a master's in public administration and a law degree, both from Brigham Young University. She also holds a doctorate in public policy from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Dr. Jones has been evaluating social policies and programs since 1997. Her involvement with drug courts and SUD treatments began in 2012. Currently, she is a visiting teaching assistant professor at the Scribner Institute of Public Policy at the University of Denver. Richard Nance holds a master's degree in social work from Brigham Young University, a certificate in drug and alcohol counseling from the University of Utah, and a master's in health administration from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. At present, he is the lead lobbyist for prestige government relations and consulting in Utah and adjunct faculty at both Utah Valley and Brigham Young Universities. He served as director of Utah Utah County Department of Drug and Alcohol Prevention and Treatment from 1998 until 2020. Mr. Nance serves on the executive board of the International Coalition for Addiction Studies Education, where he chairs, chairs the public policy subcommittee and on the Mountain Plains ATTC Advisory Board. He has presented on ethics and public policy at conferences and academic settings across the country. I'm glad I get to stop talking for a second, and I welcome (laughs) you both to the podcast. You're not gonna list the other six colleges I went to? No, we're not gonna talk about your track and field history either. Oh boy. Let me start out with with this question, and it goes to both of you, is really what was the driving force behind this research? From from my perspective, starting this research was actually something of an accident. In 2017, we didn't know many of our clients. We didn't know how many of our clients with SUDs had access to bank accounts, so we decided to ask them. And to our surprise, we learned fairly quickly that fewer than 50% of our clients had access to a personal banking account for checking or savings purposes. And the next three years, we spent trying to understand how they manage their financial transactions, 
why they were unbanked or didn't have access to bank accounts, and really what treatment providers could do to assist them in developing their personal financial capabilities. We were certainly surprised at the lack of research available on this particular aspect of recovery capital. Um, while there's research on individuals with severe mental illness who are eligible for disability and have payees, there's also research on financial incentives for individuals with SUDs to stop using them, um, to stop using substances. There is actually little research on individuals in treatment for SUDs who are expected to manage their own personal finances. Individuals I remember with reading that in the intro of, of the research, and it kind of blew me away. I understand you know, the, uh, that there's been some research about the payees and things like that, and, and also um, about programs where they'll offer something for maintaining, coming into treatment, doing that. But like I'm shocked that there wasn't any information really available about um, overall access to financial services for folks because it's so important. Did this dearth of, of prior research, that, was that a hindrance to your successful completion of this? Um, you know, it was kind of interesting because there were a few things like Hinkley was saying that we learned about, uh, but not really directly applicable. Um, and I had some experience with this previously in prior work. So one of the things in the literature talks about check effect Mm -hmm. And what that means is uh, folks with, again, it was primarily, primarily the severely mentally ill population where the research uh, actually existed. But it's people get you know, a lump sum payment, like a Social Security disability payment, and go out and blow it all. That's why their representative payees set up quite often in uh, mental health agencies. So uh, a couple of the check effect examples uh, that I personally knew of, you know, relating to poor financial management had to do with clients I worked with in the Salt Lake County uh, or Salt Lake uh, Veterans Administration Drug and Alcohol Treatment Program, and then also with severely mentally ill adults at Salt Lake Valley Behavioral Health. Everybody's got an N of one, right? Well, I got an N of two. So let me give you uh, these examples because they're really kind of uh, interesting kind of what helped lead us down this path. Um, so one veteran I worked with uh, was on a disability, uh, VA disability, uh, being treated for a substance disorder. And quite often in the beginning of the month, he would get his disability check and disappear. And typically he would end up going to Las Vegas, blowing all of his disability check within a month or so, or within a week or so, sorry and then come back to treatment when he ran out of money. One time he came back missing a couple of teeth. Um, so there's one interesting example. Another one, and this was not uncommon and kind of horrible when you think about it. Um, this one young adult male that I worked with um, was applying for SSI or SSDI. I can't remember now which one, because uh, this was 20 years ago. Um, a lot of these folks, when they apply first time to Social Security, get denied. And then they have to go through an appeal process and apply again. And um, 
when they're eventually approved, they end up getting a lump sum payment back to the initial date of their approval. So this poor young guy um, went out and he celebrated, you know, binged on alcohol prescription medications and died of an overdose as a result. And I remember very clearly um, hearing that they found pills in his mouth. So he had a mouthful of pills and passed out before he had a chance to swallow them. Uh, so there were some really bad inadvertent outcomes that got our attention and kind of, you know, led us to research this a little further. Um, so one of your, your question about lack of previous research, uh, it really kind of made it difficult in the beginning uh, in part because our clients were in treatment for substance use disorders and expected to manage their own financial affairs. Uh, and the related research was based on these mental health examples that I just gave you. Um, and the other existing research that was out there was fairly old. I think some of it was like 1996. Is that right, Hinckley? Do you recall? Maybe 2005 was the most recent that we saw. And it wasn't directly related to the research question we were studying. So that kind of made us think we were on to something. You know, interestingly, I know a lot of research often follows prior research that something is left uh, unmentioned or there are some questions, and you build a research question around that. For you two in this situation, you were really starting with that tabula rasa, that blank slate, that we're really doing something that hasn't been done before. Right. Last, uh, was it only last year? Wow, with COVID, it seems like decades have passed. <laughs> but last year, I actually went to the um, a social work research conference in Washington, D.C. And I, while I was there, I met a, a group of social workers who do research into financial, financial issues and financial capability. And they were very interested in our research because this is an area that they that they were aware of, but they didn't have anyone who was actually doing research there in, in this particular with this particular group or population. They did a lot of research with low income families, with low income populations, but not not people with SUDs. And I think this provides a, a certainly a, a baseline to look at as we start talking about these issues uh, and financial issues for folks uh, with SUDs. Um, just kind of to break it down in the simplest aspects, when we talk about recovery capital, and we, and we kind of mentioned what that was, can you define uh, the, the financial aspects of recovery capital, the things that you talked about in the study? Recovery capital includes both physical and human resources and financial capability. It actually bridges that, which is, I think, one of the reasons why it's it's kind of slipped through the cracks. Um, the physical aspects of recovery capital include money, include access to financial resources. The human resource aspect of recovery capital would include personal financial literacy and money management skills. So this is actually an area where both aspects of, recover, of recovery capital are in play and they're both important to our clients. Um, and and their functions, 
Oh, I'm sorry. And, and they're functions of each other. So having access to financial services and money allows you to practice good money management skills. And if you don't have access to the ability to practice and develop money management skills, then you can't develop them. So the interplay is very important. They're not mutually exclusive ideas. Uh, right. they, they, they fit very well together. You know, taking those into consideration, um, can you talk about the research questions that you developed and why you felt those were important to get the answers to? You know, our, our research questions were pretty straightforward. We wanted to know how our clients manage their financial transactions and what they needed in order to develop their personal financial capability and their money management skills. And we approached the research through the lens of treatment with the goal of helping our clients become essentially functioning members of society, able to hold down jobs, support their families, contribute to their communities. Um, an important part of achieving those goals is the ability to manage finances and regular financial transactions, such as cashing checks and making payments, such as paying rent or purchasing groceries. When we asked our clients if they thought that money management was important to their recovery, an overwhelming number said, absolutely. And I noticed from looking, reading the research that they felt it important, but not many wanted to talk about their own personal financial situation um, for many yeah. reasons, I can assume. Uh, and I certainly yeah. wouldn't blame somebody for not wanting to, to talk about that uh, with the stigma and shame and everything else that goes with uh, having an SUD that they face. Right. Now, we'll get into that in a, in a minute, too. But uh, one of the things, too, that's important to, to realize is recovery capital kind of bridges generations as well. So this is kind of a, a multi-generational problem. And a lot of the clients that we had in treatment really didn't have good family role models for money management to start with. So when you think about rehabilitation versus habilitation, um, you kind of have to have it and lose it before you can get it back in terms of a rehabilitation process. A lot of these people just didn't have a clue to start with. Um, but back to what Hinkley was saying, a lot of employers will pay their staff through electronic fund transfers directly into a bank rather than a paper check anymore. So it's hard to do that if you don't have a bank account. Um, so if one of our goals for treatment, and typically it's one of the basic uh, treatment goals on a treatment plan is to get a job, right? Um, if you've got folks who are uh, in treatment mandated through the courts or adult parole probation, that's usually one of their requirements is, you know, thing one, get a job. Uh, so we wanted to find out how clients manage to handle their paychecks. Uh, you know, another issue is you gotta have housing, right? You know, think about some of the basic goals for, for treatment again that case managers deal with. And a lot of these clients have unstable housing. You know, they may be dependent on others, uh, other family members or other friends. And so for them to rent an apartment in their own name, um, there are some barriers to entry there, right? You have to have a deposit, uh, first and last month's rent. A lot of times you have to pass a credit check and sometimes a criminal background check. 
So here's a shout out for the ban the box campaign. You know, we don't want folks to have to check that they've got a criminal history to be able to access housing. Um, but in addition to that, how do you pass a credit check when you've maxed out your credit cards? You were in arrears on your payments to your credit cards or you've overdrawn a bank account and don't have either a bank account or a credit history anymore. Uh, you know, so those are some of the issues that- And a lot of the individuals out there that struggle with this, uh, probably still now, but up until very recently, relied on check cashing stores and things like that, where there are exorbitant fees maybe for cashing their checks, um, walking around with a lot of cash in their pocket, which certainly right. puts them um, at risk to predators. Uh, there's a, a whole- Yeah. You know what? That, that's interesting because those were some of the assumptions that we went into this study in the first place with. Mm -hmm. And we found out pretty quickly that those are not accurate at all. Really? Yeah. Um, most of the folks know um, how expensive it is to use a check cashing store or a payday lender, and they don't do that. And they will share that information with each other in treatment. And one of the things we discovered um, is clients know more than we do about this. And um, one of the best places for them to go and, and get financial services is Walmart. They kind of are running a, a parallel banking system outside of the, the, the FDIC. And it's, it's just fascinating what you can learn from clients. And that's really great that they will share that with each other in a group too. And it, yeah, it was really fascinating. Being that you're both professors, I hate to say this to you, but anything really valuable that I've ever learned in this field over 30 something years have come from the well, clients I've worked with. Clients. Right. Jeff, you need exactly. to know this. Jeff, you need to pay attention to this. Right. Um, well, even what we learn, we learn from asking the clients. Right. I mean, we we included, as, we asked them if they cash their checks at payday lenders and check cashing stores, and, and very few of them did. Most of them said, we just go to Walmart or the local grocery store and we can cash it and they'll put it on a debit card for us. Right. And then we can go out and use it as a debit card. And that's why you do this kind of research, right? To validate your assumptions. Correct. And yeah, so we learned some really interesting things. You also are making a great case for more supportive housing. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's a complete, <laughs> that's right. a, another uh, can of worms that we're not right. going to open up, uh, the right. need for supportive housing. Richard, this may be a question that you're best equipped to answer is one thing I really found interesting about this, um, of the demographics of your study, your study co uh, or that all of these individuals should be considered to be in treatment involuntarily. Right. I found that really fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was a director of a county government-based uh, drug and alcohol prevention and treatment agency. And we've treated over 2,000 people a year. Um, and again, like I said before, Hinkley was our program evaluator. Um, so we were the social safety net program for a county of over 600,000 people. And over 90% of the clients that we admitted reported income at or below federal poverty guidelines uh, and no commercial health insurance. Um, so most of the referrals that we got came directly from uh, the justice courts, the district court, the um, juvenile courts. Um, we had a lot of drug court clients. Um, a lot came from the Department of Corrections, adult parole and probation from the public defender's office. Um, and other 
social service agencies. So the majority of the folks in our treatment programs were in one way or another mandated to the treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that's probably not the case to the extent that it was for our agency. If you're running a not-for-profit somewhere else in the country. Um, but if you come from the courts and criminal justice, you're often ordered to get an assessment. And this is like the language uh, that comes on the court orders. You're ordered to get an assessment and comply with the treatment recommendations of the treatment provider. And both of these you're expected to pay for, um, at least on a sliding fee scale. And that's really um, kind of how we ended up with most of these folks because they were either on Medicaid or we were paying for their treatment through the SAPT block grant and matching state and county funds. Yeah, I found that, that really interesting. And, and you know, knowing a little bit about the demographics of your county, um, but uh, um, I didn't realize ultimately the, the criminal justice and, and judicial system involvement in the clients that, that you were serving uh, at, through the county. Yeah. Uh, given that you know, 79% of those folks that were involved of, of your research subjects were non-Hispanic whites, um, which is, is very much in line with what U.S. Census data for that area says. Is Are there any plans to duplicate the study in, in more racially diverse communities? At this point, no. But we are certainly interested in doing so if the opportunity presents itself. Um, also, if other researchers want to continue this work in more diverse communities, we would be very supportive and encouraging. And it's I think an that the answers would be step forward. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Very telling in the research is the suggestion that there's a significant difference in the population of individuals who have SUDs than low-income households in you, in terms of the use of traditional financial services. Can we can you talk about some of the data that you accumulated that shows that difference? Current research by the FDIC reports that nearly 20% of households with earnings below 30000 a year do not currently have a bank account. Among our SUD clients, over 50% do not have access to traditional financial services like a bank account. Um, as I said before, this, this finding was somewhat surprising. We knew from the case managers that some of the clients didn't have bank accounts, but we had no idea that it was so high. Another comparison that our research allows us to make was actually with respect to financial literacy. In an effort to capture our clients' levels of financial literacy, we would ask several questions about credit card and savings interest rates, as well as inflation impacts that were also asked in a national financial literacy study of low-income households. And while the most common responses from our clients were correct, a much lower percentage of our clients actually answered the questions correctly than both the state and the national levels suggesting a much lower level of financial literacy. So for example, one of the questions we asked was, suppose you had $100 in a savings account and the interest rate was 2% per year. After five years, how much do you think you would have in the account if you left the money to grow? So the clients were a little annoyed at these questions. I didn't know there was gonna be a math test. 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That is exactly what they said. They, they, they reported to the case managers that they felt like they were back in high school doing applied math problems. But, well, 70 for, so for example, while 74% of the respondents at the national level knew the answer was more than $102, only 55% of our clients knew that. And with others of the math questions, um, they knew sometimes even less. So the impact of interest, the impact of inflation, they, they weren't too bad when it came to calculating credit card interests right. and payment, optimal ways of paying off a credit card, but still it was significantly lower than both the national and the state average. Yeah, they knew the cost side of the balance sheet better than the revenue side when it comes to financial management, which is probably no surprise because a lot of these folks are living day-to-day financially. So the opportunity for them to to save anything at all is really unrealistic as far as expectations go. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, it's their in their experience, they can they can answer questions related to the things that they've experienced. It's harder to project things that that are foreign to them. And when you talk about habitation, uh, habilitation, it's it's these are things that they've never been exposed to before, other than maybe seeing a commercial, hearing something on the radio, but never had to really think about before. Right. Um, I can see that being frightening and frustrating for somebody who doesn't have that that knowledge. Right. It's a little scary. I think that kind of one of the things that this research makes me think about is its impact on those peer supports in the community, recovery coaches and peer supports who are helping individuals manage those barriers to recovery. And this level of knowledge is really important for that non-clinical provider because they're out there in the community with individuals where they live and have to help them move these barriers. Financial issues are certainly a huge barrier to many in recovery. Absolutely. What are some further questions that this research uh, created for you that you'd like to see looked at in the future? One of the questions we would like to explore in more depth is how individuals in treatment for SUDs navigate this gray market of banking services. We, we were surprised and we learned a lot of interesting things from them and we would like to explore that a little more. Another thing that kind of came up is the, is the correlation with age. So clients in all of the older age groups were significantly less likely to have access to bank accounts than the younger clients, 18 to 22 years old, which suggested to us that younger individuals have access to bank accounts, but then lose that access due to poor financial choices and substance use. But again, it's one of those questions that we don't have evidence to support. I see both being incredibly interesting and and I'd I'd like to see, um, you know, answers to those type of questions because I don't want to go on assumptions. Exactly. Exactly. So, Another area of research, and and I could go on and on about directions, but um, we started to explore it and we would like to continue is this influence of newer methods of handling money 
such as PayPal, Apple Pay, Venmo, et cetera. Um, but we found that our clients were aware of those, but much more likely to do the Walmart, put the money on a debit card. We're not sure, again, if they're less comfortable with PayPal, Apple Pay, and Venmo because they require bank accounts and major credit cards and the clients just don't have access to it, or if there really is a level of comfort that comes knowing that you have in your hand a debit card with money on it rather than there's this thing called PayPal out in the ether somewhere that has money that you could spend. And I would assume, again, you know, just an assumption that using Walmart, uh, you can get some advice from your peers and from your friends right. because they've used that. So there's a safety uh, right. aspect to that. If I get stuck, I don't know what to do. Somebody can help me out because everybody's doing it. That, that's a definite possibility. You so, did mention in there, and I don't want to give them a, a, a plug, but I have used them, TrueLink, um, in some work I've right. done with, with recovery housing that right. the, that recovery houses had required that for yeah. some of these recovery houses for their people so that they could help them manage uh, their money. And these were sober houses or recovery residences that really had support for the residents, not just the resident house manager, but really were able to provide other services um, that while they were in the house, that's how they wanted them to manage their money. And it, it was really effective. Um, right. Yeah, and, TrueLink was, was like the only one that we discovered so far that really is designed to help people sort of re-enter the financial market and help them manage their, you know, their funding, their bank account, quote unquote. Um, so yeah, that's that's something that we need to look into further. And uh, I know before we started talking uh, on the recording, I told you all that uh, we gotten some outreach from American Express and they're also interested in the sort of research that we've done and, and uh, haven't, like us, when we did our lit review, hadn't found anything in advance that um, uh, really shed any light on this, this problem. Um, but for other future research, one of our professional colleagues who we shared the paper with uh, is Dick Dillon from Missouri. He suggested that um, we continue to explore outreach to other financial institutions um, to help them understand how they might want to maybe adapt their kind of traditional business practices to account for these kind of folks who are demonstrating a commitment to recovery, but really need some help in restoring um, their, you know, access to traditional financial services. Um, so we know that, you know, when people get in, <clears throat> into treatment, especially early on, they start to get really committed to, um, you know, recovering from the chaos of their drug using life. And so what that means for a lot of people is they really want to do better at uh, putting their financial lives back together again. We also looked at uh, financial literacy and access by primary drug of abuse. You know, it's kind of always one of those questions you want to look at, right? Um, and Hinckley reported that younger clients have 
more access to financial services than the older clients do because they haven't created such a mess yet. But we looked at primary drug of abuse and admission and most of the clients we treated over close to 80% of them report at least three drugs of abuse and admission. But if you reported methamphetamine as your uh, primary drug of abuse, those folks seem to have more financial problems than others. I don't know how relevant that is, though. But, um, you know, we always say in, in, in treatment, a drug is a drug is a drug. But it, it looks like methamphetamine kind of, for some reason, was more significant um, to screwed up finances. Yeah, I, you know, I don't, whether it's applicable or, or, or not, to me, is irrelevant because I find it absolutely interesting. You know, yeah. I love data. I don't like right. doing the research, but I like reading it and looking at the data uh, because I'm a nerd in that way. And it, 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 you know, it piques my interest. Are there things that you discovered from doing this that really surprised you? Uh, that one, that one's kind of a where to begin question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we talked um, about a couple of those things already. You know, our assumptions, a couple of those got blown out of the water. Right. Um, like I said, we're surprised at the number of clients that were unbanked. We were surprised at their ability to function actually quite well for their situation in what we started calling the gray market, cashing checks at grocery stores, putting the money onto, onto the prepaid debit cards. Um, like I said, they, they knew ways of handling financial transactions. We had no idea. You know, when we talk about motivation uh, in treatment and recovery, one of the things that I always talk about is how motivation is situational and very fluid. Um, <laughs> and just yes. because they're not meeting the goals that I had doesn't mean that they're not motivated to something. And being able to survive with that lifestyle requires an incredible amount of motivation. Right. Um, yes. So it really is a trait, not a state, as Bill Miller would say. Right. And, uh, and there's a lot of ingenuity. Right. Yeah. Um, another thing that surprised us that we haven't talked about was the number of regular monthly payments that our clients were responsible for making. An average of over four payments a month, even those clients who didn't have bank accounts. So and managing that is an incredible feat yes. right? without a bank account. They have, they have rent, they have child support, they have court fees, they have criminal restitution. Um, Transportation costs. Credit card payments. And, and I mean, we had a very lengthy list we asked and the answers on average were over four. Everybody had at least one or two, and some had as many as, as 12 different regular monthly financial obligations they had to meet. I'd be lying if I, if I didn't say that for individuals to survive like this and manage the best that they can while struggling with an SUD, I, I'm impressed. And I'd be lying if I said that that didn't impress me. And I yeah. think that that right there is something that when I've worked with clients, that I'd want to grab onto and say, look at what you were doing. This is incredible. I don't yeah. know how many people who could. Right. Um, that there are skills involved. They're not always applied in the best way, but there are skills that can be built upon. Right. Yeah. 
You know, another surprise uh, to us um, really had to do with our data collection. And um, this is really a place for future research that people need to look into. Uh, so one of the surprises was how suspicious of our motives the clients were when we were starting to ask them financial questions. And one of the theories that we developed was that clients who were referred by the criminal justice system were concerned about having their bank accounts garnished um, and other potential negative consequences. They're just very, very, you know, I don't want to use the word paranoid because that's a little too clinical, but they were overly suspicious of why we're asking them these questions at admission. Um, we also learned that most of our clients know to the penny how much money they have. And when funds are garnished, um, you know, like for child support and so forth, it just causes you know, horrible ripple effects in, uh, you know, overdraft fees and all sorts of downstream problems that are caused by that. If they don't know, if they don't have control over um, when the money's being taken out of their accounts, most of them, of course, in treatment want to do the right thing. They want to honor their financial obligations, but um, their own personal survival comes first. And Jeff, you mentioned this yourself a little bit ago. Um, then our second theory had to do with the trust of the counselors. So once they get established in treatment after you know a few weeks and develop a relationship with their therapists and case managers, they're a little more forthcoming with this kind of financial information. So timing of the data collection and who actually asks it, it really is kind of a key topic for, I think, separate future research. And I, it, you're really speaking to, if Bill Miller could hear this, he'd be very happy because you're talking about the strength of that therapeutic relationship right. to gather information that may be a little scary, but that can be helpful in the long run. If there's not a relationship built, nobody's going to give you that information or they're going to give you numbers that's not accurate or just to get you off their back. Yeah. From an applied perspective, what implications do you think the findings have on clinical practice going forward? I'm learning that a growing emphasis in social work education is actually financial training so that clinicians can work with clients on developing financial capability and money management skills and their personal financial literacy. Clearly, our research supports that emphasis by indicating the need for that training. Um, additionally, we worked with a local bank to modify their pre-existing training materials for this unique population. Timing of when these interventions occur is pretty important and possibly another area of future research. From our initial forays into financial education for SUD clients, and an understanding of cognitive impairment early mm -hmm. in recovery, for example, we actually would recommend implementing financial training for SUD clients at the ASAM GOP level of treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they've, they've got to be able to get it and understand it and actually be able to apply it, you know, because if you're in residential treatment, right, you're not going to be um, leaving the facility for work. Uh, you may have already lost your job. 
by the time you get into IOP and GOP, that starts to become a treatment goal. And at that point, you're cognitively going to be able to absorb the information and actually apply it out in the community better. You know, Hinckley alluded to one thing that was really interesting, and, and she'll have to um, kind of fill in my gaps on this, but the local bank we used was Wells Fargo. That's the bank that the county um, does their financial business with. And banks have a requirement that they provide this sort of uh, education service. And we were lucky enough to uh, link in with um, the two guys at our local Wells Fargo uh, bank in Provo to start this uh, for us. So we had a, I can't remember how many weeks it was now. What was the, the length of the training program, the financial literacy education program that they did for us. I think it, was it didn't cost us anything. Four, right. It was four or five weeks long. It's actually part of the Community Reinvestment Act that banks are required to provide um, services in mm-hmm. their communities. Non um, unpaid, actually, volunteer voluntary services. That's good to know, and I think that's good for our listeners to know, too, if they want to help the folks that they're working with, that it gives them a resource to reach out to mm-hmm. their local bank or wherever they, maybe where they do their banking uh, or organizations as well. Banks are often looking for ways to to give back and can support their communities in this way. You've just given me some stuff to follow up on because now I'm even more curious about that, about the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, finally, we, we've talked about a lot of stuff, but but let me break it down to just to the simplest and say, how can our folks that are listening access this study um, and read it for themselves, which I certainly highly recommend? Is it online? Um so the Journal of Substance Use and Misuse published this in January, their January edition. Um, so it's online. Um, you know, if you've got a you know a relationship with an educational institution, you could probably get it through um, their library or maybe even interlibrary loan. And um, there is a link I know, uh, and what I'll do is I'll put that on our marketing materials so that people can have access to click to click on that as we as they prepare to listen so that they have an, uh, an understanding of what the work was. Any closing thoughts? Yeah, we've got another uh, related uh, publication that we've submitted for, um, you know, for approval, review and approval right now. And it's a, this was a quantitative one and the second publication is qualitative. So it probably speaks more to the applied Applicate the applied research, uh, you know, how to actually use what we've done in a treatment program. And I know I didn't explain that very well, Hinkley. You could probably do a better job. I love qualitative myself. <laughs> it, it, what it does is it actually goes through the process of developing an intervention and how we worked with the banks and how we worked with the case managers to develop an intervention more in a qualitative sense. It it probably won't be in publication for a while, but we are working on that one, yes. Well, that's exciting. And I, I think that's good for our folks here that, that that's also kind of a, a building block yes. as, as we try to improve the financial lives of, of the individuals and actually make their financial awareness and capabilities part of their recovery capital. 
That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Dr. Hinckley Jones, Sanpei, and Richard Nance for joining us and also express our gratitude once again to Recovery Network and Programs for their generous support of today's episode. We here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. And don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, vigilant, and wear a mask. Goodbye, all.